the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, quantum snapback technology to transform warfare and save many a marriage that's on the rocks, rounding up an April mass market stampede, and the latest entry in our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. We talked with Travis S. Taylor this time about his new book, Trail of Evil. This one starts a new chapter in Travis's Tau Ceti Agenda series that uh, began with One Day on Mars and continued with the Tau Ceti Agenda and One Good Soldier. Travis discusses the book, Cool Quantum Technology, and its possible tactical implications in battle. And he also brings us up to date on his new television show, which is going to be on the Weather Channel. All that coming up. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. First, the news. Would you watch out for that juggernaut? The corral is open and they're off. The new April mass market paperbacks, that is. But before that, I want to tell you about an Omni Edition trade paperback, which contains two novels by the late great science fiction writer James P. Hogan. This is called Cyber Rogues, and it includes Hogan Book's Cradle of the Sun and The Legend That Was Earth, both bound together in one of these handily-sized omnis we put out in the uh, 5x7.5-inch format. I love those books for their sheer handleability, I guess you could call it. Also out in mass market, paperback is 1920 America's Great War by Robert Conroy. Bob Conroy, the excellent alt-history writer, Died in December, and we'll miss him. This one is an alternate history with the what-if that Wilson kept the U.S. out of World War I, and now we find that a triumphant Germany has plans to invade the continental U.S. And out in April is Balance Point by Robert Butner. This is the latest entry in Bob Butner's Orphan's Legacy series. We did a podcast interview with Bob talking about Balance Point on April 4th, of last year, so check that out if you'd like. Cyber Rogues, 1920, America's Great War, and Balance Point are now available at booksellers everywhere. Travis S. Taylor, Dr. Travis S. Taylor, is the creator of the Warp Speed series of science fiction novels with novels Warp Speed and The Quantum Connection and the Tossetti Agenda series He's also the author of the nonfiction book, The Science Behind the Secret, and co-author of Alien Invasion, How to Defend Earth, and A New American Space Plan. He's also collaborated with John Ringo and Les Johnson on books such as Forpole Blade, Mangsome Foe, and Back to the Moon, which is the one he did with Les. Travis is a scientist, and there's no other way to put it, a television personality. He's got a doctorate in optical science and engineering, a master's in physics, and Lord knows what else. Am I missing something, Travis? Well, uh, yeah, I guess. I actually have two PhDs, one in optical science and engineering, another PhD in uh, aerospace systems engineering, and I have three master's degrees, one in physics, one in astronomy, and one in mechanical and aerospace engineering, and my bachelor's degree is in electrical engineering. So I'm kind of a, you know, mixed... Uh, across several different uh, genres of technology there. Yeah. Well, you've worked as a contractor for the Defense uh, Department of Defense and NASA, I think, for 16 years now. And uh, uh, Well, actually, it's, a, it's about, it's really more than that. It's about uh, 25 years now. This, uh, 16 years was, uh, this is, that's old information. Yeah. I'm getting older. I will, I'll have to change that in, the, uh, in our biographies on the on the uh, on the tip sheets and on the books, what is uh, what do you, what have you done with? I mean, what you can tell us about some of your contracting work? Uh, yeah, well, I've done a little bit of everything uh, as far as uh, design spacecraft and and hardware that would go on the space station or the space shuttle for experiments. 
I've designed satellites. I guess what I do today is, uh, or these days, I work on satellites and propulsion systems for the Army uh, for small satellites that will go into orbit for communications or imaging or, you know, whatever you can think of. I've built laser systems uh, uh, for whether they be for hopefully for weapons systems or for communication systems or, or images, uh, you know, uh, sensors like LIDAR and things like that. And and I, I've worked on uh, some very large uh, space telescope concepts for both uh, optical and radio telescopes uh, for various reasons, you know, for astronomy and for uh, also, you know, looking back at, our, at ourselves sometimes. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, the uh, there's so much that's coming in. Uh, you know, they're discovering all these exoplanets and everything. We we need a giant telescope up there, don't we? Well, you know, uh, it's getting to the point where uh, the reason why we don't have the big giant telescopes on Earth is because the atmospheric distortion uh, can mess up the images. But we're learning how to remove the atmospheric distortion with computer uh, systems and so on and, and movable mirrors. And so we can just about spend, you know, less money, maybe a tenth of the money that it would take on a big space telescope and build one here on Earth and use. But now, of course, if one's in orbit, it doesn't have uh, half of its field of view uh, cut off, and it also doesn't have to wait until certain times of the day to look anywhere it wants to. Uh, if it's up in higher orbit where it can point itself anywhere it wants to. It, you know, you you could, you could, you don't have to wait on it. So there's a mixed bag there. Uh, if you just want a really, really, really big telescope, you, know, you could build one on Earth. But it would be cool to have it uh, in space, so you point it anytime you want to, anywhere you want to. But then it's a lot harder for something messes up for you to go fix it. Yeah, as we've found out with the with the Hubble as well. Well, um, let's let's talk about the book. Um, by the way, Travis is also a martial artist, a scuba diver, a pilot, and he's run a marathon in an astronaut suit as well, which you don't see every day or ever. An it wasn't actually an astronaut suit. It was actually uh, an armor suit. Oh, that's right. It was, uh, uh, I was actually, yeah, so it's not an astronaut suit. I was, it was actually full-body armor that I was experimenting with to uh, protect soldiers. Right, and you wanted to to show the extent of uh, of what it could do. That was part of your series, Rocket City Rednecks. Now, I hear there's another series in the making, uh, and since this will go on Friday, uh, can you tell us something about that? I think it'll be announced by then. Yeah, actually, it was announced this past Friday. Uh, my new series, we just finished filming uh, season one for a new show. It's called Three Scientists Walking to a Bar. Uh, it'll be on the Weather Channel. This uh, is the first three episodes are going to air. I believe it's May 31st this year, and then uh, later at the end of the summer is when the fall fall series start. Our the rest of the, the season will, will air then. Hopefully, we'll be making season two by then. What's the What's the idea of it? The concept. Well, it is a, it's a really cool uh, way to do a science show. It's got uh, three scientists, myself and two other co-hosts. Uh, I'm sort of the senior scientist and, and certainly the hands-on builder uh, of the group. And uh, each episode will be about various things, that mostly weather-related, some are not, uh, because this is going on the Weather Channel. But, uh, you know, with the Weather Channel's new slogan that it's amazing out there, that means out there is the whole universe, right? Mm -hmm. And so we, we've uh, looked at all sorts of things. One, my coolest thing we did in Season 1 and I can't wait for, you, for everybody to see it, was I built probably, as far as I can tell anyway, the world's largest open-air tornado machine. So I built a 15-foot tornado in my uh, daughter's uh, uh, elementary school gymnasium. <laughs> man, and, that sounds cool, man. <laughs> I can't wait to see that. Yeah, it was real cool. Well, uh, the Tossetti Agenda series, um, that, this is the series that includes One Day on Mars, the Tossetti Agenda, uh, One Good Soldier, and now out of booksellers everywhere, there's Trail of Evil. Um, Trail of Evil, it's got mech fighting, mechs, guys in mech suit and women, of course. It's got bots chewing, chopping, and clawing at Marines and soldiers. 
Uh, but at heart, this thing is a is hard science fiction book. Um, there are some amazing, cool concepts in the book. Can you tell us um, about some of those, like QMT? Oh, yeah, QMT, the quantum membrane transportation concept. Yeah, actually, almost all the technology uh, that makes this series fun is based on uh, quantum physics and quantum membrane concepts in, in, in the extreme theoretical end of modern-day physics right now. But, of course, this series takes place about 350 years in the future. So, uh, uh, you know, we've developed it. And the quantum membrane teleportation is uh, basically if you can connect two points on a membrane, the membrane being it's an underlying structure of our universe. Uh, so imagine the universe is made of these membranes like a, like a, uh, the skin on a snare drum. Mm. Right? Is this uh, so string like, theory related or is it something else? Or? It's actually, if you take string theory a little further, string theory is, is a string. Well... There are a lot of things you can't do with string theory, so if you change it from strings to a membrane, it's a surface now instead of a string, it, it allows you a lot more uh, flexibility in, in the theory and the things you could do with it. So now the quantum membrane teleportation, the, the key is that if you have touched two points in space-time and you have these devices uh, on each end there that you touched, then you can, uh, they had to have come from the same thing, had to have connected them. But once they're connected, you can teleport back and forth between those locations at any time you want. And uh, so you could build something like Stargates at any distance across the universe and do instantaneous uh, transportation. But you actually have to be able to go there to, uh, and set up the other end of it. So you can't just magically appear anywhere you want to in the galaxy. Now, one of the cool things I had an idea about is you could snap a membrane kind of like a, a fishing rod uh, or a fly rod where if you throw the membrane, if you take two points and you connect them and you throw it, you could throw a teleportation some distance, the length of your fishing line, uh, which is the amount in, in, in the quantum membrane tele teleportation thing. My concept is however much energy you can manipulate in your thing is how far you can throw a person. And I'm guessing there's only it really is a guess. You can't really do any calculations yet to to play with that. But the idea is you can you can go a few light years uh, instantaneously around anywhere from around your teleportation pad. So that actually uh, makes it where you could start going faster than just warp travel because you could snap about three light years ahead. Reset your stuff, snap, uh, you know, slingshot yourself forward again, slingshot yourself forward again. And then to come back, you just would snap back like a rubber band. You know, you throw, throw a heavy weight on a rubber band or a bungee cord out in front of you, and then you just snap it back when you're ready to come back. And so I call these sling forward and snap back technology. It's really cool the military applications you come up with to, to kind of embody them. The... Let's talk about that a little bit more, though. The, um, I mean, this is based on quantum entanglement and the and the instantaneous transfer of information that that we're doing right now in science, right? Yeah, it's, it's very much uh, akin to that, and but it takes it one step further in that right now, uh, what we're doing is we're transferring or we're, we're changing quantumly entangled energy wave functions at at large distances. And, you know, you can affect something on one side of the experiment, and it will instantaneously affect the one on the other side of the experiment. But uh, we're just now determining that we might can do it with matter, and we're doing it with electrons and, and neutrons and things. Uh, but the idea here is we've learned how to do it with macroscopic size matter like starships, right? Uh, tanks and, and fighter planes and, and, and squadrons of troops and stuff. And uh, so that just think about uh, the biggest thing, I remember when I was a kid in high school or junior high, whatever it was, when uh, British invaded the Falkland Islands. And they're like, okay, we're going to fix the uprising in the Falklands. We'll see you in about two weeks. They loaded up all their gear on aircraft carriers and stuff, and it took them two weeks to travel across the ocean down to the to the islands. And I, and I thought about that. You know, how would it change 
military uh, engagements if you could just instantly throw your troops over there? And even more so, what if each one of them could put a safety watch on that uh, if they were getting wounded or overrun, they could just touch a button and it would snap them back to headquarters back uh, in the safe environment, at, uh, whether on the Starship or the aircraft carrier or back home. That really changes things. Even think about wounded. If you get if, uh, if a soldier got mortally wounded, uh, if they stayed there for 30 seconds or something, they'd bleed out, they might could snap back to a, some kind of immediate operating room where doctors would be standing by ready to go to work, right? Yeah. Changes how you think about everything. And you could perhaps also snap forward in such a way that uh, you just appear, your force. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And think about the way and what that does for flanking maneuvers and for uh, creating kill boxes uh, from a military strategy standpoint. If you could start popping your troops in here and there, you could come into a quick ambush and then pop out and then pop somewhere else. You could lead forces somewhere and then pop in and surround them or, or do all sorts of things uh, that, that, that you can't do now with more conventional modes of travel. What's so cool is that this is all extrapolation from stuff that, that we're messing with right now. And it's, I mean, you know, it's a little, uh, it's science fiction, but, uh, but dang, you know, it's, it's, it's not pie in the sky stuff. Yeah, right. It's not, it's not fantasy. You know, there's a, uh, I was actually at a, a convention and was talking to a girl who, who, uh, only read fantasy. And I said, well, fantasy is easier, much easier to write than science, than hard science fiction, because, uh, in fantasy, you can make up whatever rules you need to, to change them, bend them, do whatever. But in hard science fiction, you're still stuck to the laws of physics. And when you write your story, you have to figure it out. And I read a paragraph from, uh, one good soldier, or maybe it was, uh, no, it was from Tau City Agenda, uh, where uh, main one of the main characters, Death Ray, gets stuck on, uh, crashes on the outside of an enemy aircraft carrier, and he figures out a way to use his ejection seat to escape the artificial gravity of it. And, I, and for about a three-page little section of the book, I'll go through all the details, how much energy she, he was going to need in the explosive uh, uh, ejection uh, charges and, and how far it would throw him and how many G-forces and all this stuff and would he be able to overcome so much gravity from the ship and and I had it took me a, a day or two just to do all the math on that to make sure it was going to work and had it been a fantasy novel they would just wrote a new spell and said oh well you know uh, <laughs> abracadabra or whatever yeah and and so that's the difference in hard science and, and fantasy not that one's better than the other I mean it's just, they're just different right yeah but uh, well, I love Death Ray, by the way. He <clears throat> Death Ray is in Trail of Evil as well. He's he's back. What's his name? Jack Bolin or something like that. Jack Bolin. Yeah, Jack Bolin. Great call, call that name. Um, so can you bring us up to speed on, on where we are in the Tossetti Agenda universe um, in Trail of Fear? What's the story so far? Uh, Trail of Evil? In Trail of Evil? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. In, well, in Trail of Evil... Um, uh, there's a there's a whole different sort of set of situations. The, the previous war that was going on is is winding down. It's over with basically, and the the good guys, the United States of the solar system of the Sol system, uh, decides that they need to go out, or at least the unclassified story is that they're going out to mop up any of the pocket of the in, the insurgents and and revolutionaries that might might have been hidden near in nearby star systems close to earth cuz we've only ever traveled out about you know 20 or 30 light years from earth at this point in our in our history but what we don't know underneath it is there's a much deeper hidden agenda that was that was explained in at the end of one good soldier or at least hinted at at the end of one good soldier and so our heroes, uh, which was President Alexander Moore in the previous books, he since no longer president, but uh, he was made a, uh, a five-star general. Uh, and 
He's uh, now in charge of a single super carrier and a skeleton crew of soldiers to go out and do this mopping up. And one of those soldiers, of course, is his daughter, uh, Deanna uh, Moore, who is coming into her own as as uh, a Miss Badass Marine. And it, it it's turning out to be there's a lot more things happening than we were we would have expected. And I, you know, I'm, I'm really afraid to say anything because every page on this book is a spoiler. I know, I know. And, uh, and I don't want I don't want to give any of it away. You know. Well, we I mean maybe we can give a bit of a spoiler in that the jacket copy of the book itself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always figure we can talk about whatever's in the jacket copy of a book because somebody's going to have read that maybe before they uh, they crack the book. But um, let's talk. Tell me more about Alexander Moore, and I, I love that relationship with his daughter because he's not he's not he cares about her deeply. But the one thing that he knows he has to do is let her let her go forward, do her thing. That that he can't keep her safe and let her be herself at the right. same time. And that's, you know, that's really one of the funnest parts to write. Uh, you know, I have a daughter myself, and she's 10, and she's getting to that age where she's wanting to experiment with things that are, that could, you know, like riding a, a, a bicycle and or, or doing flips and things like that that, you know, could be dangerous potentially, but I can't not let her do them, right? Because mm-hmm. she's got to learn what, what her what she can do and how awesome she can be and so on. And uh, so it's more more is in the same set because he, uh, Alexander Moore is the most badass that has ever walked on, you know, two feet. <laughs> and, and his daughter is cut from the same cloth. And, and so he knows that, you know, he could have with the connections he's made over his career, make sure there's someone always protecting her, right? Make sure she never gets the hard assignment. But instead, uh, what he does is he loves her dearly and helps her if he has to, but uh, he stays out of her way and lets her become the badass that she has become. And that's, I mean, he's probably reasoning that that's going to make her safest in the long run if she can survive it. <laughs> Assuming that she survives. Right? But there are times, there are times when daddy has to come to the rescue. Right. And when, and when only daddy could come to the rescue. And, uh, but it's not times when she just gave up and just said, hell, dad. It's times where she was fighting to the bitter end and he wasn't going to let her. I mean, he was going to let her do it herself. So he was going to, you know, come in and make, give her every opportunity to survive and have a long life. But she gets, uh, she gets, uh, she gets it pretty rough in this book. <laughs> this, this book's pretty hard on the animal. Yeah. Well, um, most of the Marines and and soldiers in the in the books uh, are they have they have uh, mechanic they have mecha suits of some sort or another, um, and these these have a lot of properties to keep them alive that that are really cool. Um, they can get hurt pretty bad and be back fighting quickly, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, you know, this three hundred years in the future. And I think about things that we have now and how to extrapolate that further forward. Uh, first of all, they've got, uh, suits that are, that make Iron Man or, uh, suits look like, you know, kid toys. Uh, these are real armored soldier suits that they wear. It makes them super strong, super fast. They've got, uh, jump thruster boots that makes them jump really high. Uh, they can, you know, they're armor up to stop all sorts of, uh, weapons fire, but at this day and age, they've got all sorts of weapons, so they're not perfectly safe. And there's a, a thing about it that I uh, that you don't see in almost every other story I've read that has powered armor. And uh, people in a suit, if you've never worn a spacesuit or some type of gear, that it's hard on the outside, and when you touch your body, you have no sensation of having been touched. Because you're inside a shell. And you realize you're going to have to be in this thing for hours and hours and hours. When I did the, that Iron Man suit we built on Rocket City Rednecks, I was in that suit one of the days we were filming for four hours. And it took a lot of very, very sincere patience 
and calming, almost like uh, Zen and yoga meditation while I was in it, uh, or just distraction to keep from wanting to scratch something or, uh, <laughs> you know, thinking, you know, i got to get out of this thing. And you think astronauts on EVAs in those suits, they're in them for five or six hours where they can't touch themselves or feel themselves. So it takes a whole other mindset. And now think about these guys, like Moore, he's set, he's got, he holds the world record for having been in a suit for 30 days. Um, and just think about not being able to touch yourself for 30 days, right? Yeah, and, and not being able to suit. just just like rub your eyes or um right anything is it one of the uh the sobric cats that that the marines have is that they want that the really tough ones eat their own vomit when they oh yes 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 the uh that's the fighter pilots the uh oh, yeah the the mecha jocks the navy the navy uh fighter pilots that fly the uh Ares fighters and now I gave uh, a new uh, Marine fighter this year, I mean, in uh, Trail of uh, uh, Evil, so that there's some Marine pilots that can do this maneuver. It's called a puking death blossom. <laughs> uh, uh, a puking death blossom is a reference to uh, the old movie uh, uh, Starfighter, the last Starfighter. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There was a, there was a maneuver that, they, that he did where the ship spins around and shoots everything it can, uh, and it's called the death blossom. Well, our pilots today, modern day pilots, if they go into a a, a massive spin, it w- it makes the G forces just to pull everything out of your stomach, and it makes them throw up in their helmet. And they call that they say that you went through a puking death blossom. Well, but they don't do it on purpose, and they never would want to do it because our our fighter planes today aren't designed to handle it. But in 300 years from now, our planes could be designed to handle it. And it could be one of those things where if they were in a bad situation, they could go into a death blossom to kill as many things around them as they possibly could and improve their numbers. But at the same time, it takes a serious toll on their bodies because they throw up all in their helmets. Um, you know, they have to choke it back, eat their own vomit, and uh, uh, and the suit will help absorb some of it. But then as soon as that's over, you're still in the middle of combat. People try to kill you. So you have to suck it up, so to speak, literally. <laughs> You pardon the pun, and and, uh, and go right back to killing. And uh, so, uh, yeah, that's uh, when you talk about that's what the drill sergeants say about the uh, in training of their fighter pilots. That our Marines, uh, our fighter pilots, mecha jocks are are uh, are you know bad SOBs that eat their own vomit for breakfast, right? Well, the enemy that they're facing is these bots um, who are pretty badass themselves, and they're. Uh, they're controlled. Artificial intelligence is kind of suffuse humanity and not all of them are good. Not all of them are evil. Um, since we met Copernicus before, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, who is the enemy here? So, right. Well, I guess uh, people have, have, may have read the first three books and they realize that the, the bad guy is, uh, a, an artificial intelligence computer, or counterpart, AIC, artificial intelligence counterpart, is one of the very first ones that uh, the president, Sienna Madeira, uh, one of the greatest presidents in human history, uh, about 150 years prior to the One Day on Mars series, Tau City Agenda series, uh, had experimentally put in her. But there was something... Uh, a little bit wacky about this AIC, and and it went kind of nuts and became sort of controlling of her personality and led her down a path of severe uh, peril and turns where she became also not one of the greatest Americans in human history, but also one of the uh, most maniacal, mass-murdering, bloodthirsty villains in human history. And... And Alexander Moore got caught up in the middle of all of this. In fact, she even tortured him to near death many times, and that's when he escaped and had to spend 30 days in his uh, 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 armor suit. Mm-hmm. So Copernicus is uh, hes very cold and calculated, and he has a hidden agenda of his own that we still, even after Trail of Evil, we think we know. Uh, but I'm going to tell you right now that 
we really don't know what Copernicus's plan is. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk in a general way about about aliens. <laughs> uh, we have in the dust jacket copy that there's aliens out there, um, so people will will know that going into the book they might encounter them. Um, I like the idea that there's a re that it always seemed to me that the chances of encountering an entirely peaceful alien species is about nil. Um, can you tell us in a general way about how you go about conceiving an alien species? Yeah, well, you know, aliens are, are if they're sentient creatures, they're going to be like any other sentient creatures, and they're going to have their own agenda. And the fact that they're alien is one of the things I tell people. My best example to explain to students and uh, folks about aliens is to tell them to go watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Because that, that movie is about an alien invasion in some form. And it's strange and weird and crazy and goofy. And you still don't really understand why the aliens were here at the end of the movie. And that's my point, is that they had alien motivation. It's, their motivation will be alien to us and very difficult for us to comprehend because it's alien. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be as simple as they just want to come here and eat us. It might be as simple as they just want to come here and live on our real estate. But it might be something completely even more weird and more menacing and, and disastrous for humanity. So that's how I always think of aliens when I develop them. Their intent could be per perfectly, uh, you know, benign and, and actually theoretically beneficial for us, but how many times have we attempted to help cultures out and we completely screwed them? <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, and presumably there's different, you know, in, in, in perhaps uh, some universes, there's, there's different species of aliens and all of these species are going to have agendas themselves. And they may, and just like with us, right? They, they ally for their own reasons. Right, right, right. Uh, that's absolutely right. And, you know, one of the, the reasons, uh, one of the, the pitch, when I pitched this book to, uh, to Bain, uh, Bain Books, I, I, I told, uh, uh, Tony Weisskopf that I was really thinking of, uh, a concept where some aliens had bought our, the, the, uh, future, uh, you know, uh, in a futures market on the so on our solar system, real estate. And there's some rules that this uh, larger galactic stock exchange has about buying futures on real estate uh, from worlds that the, or the stock exchange culture doesn't own yet. Uh, but they had first rights to them if, you know, they there were no sentient creatures in that real estate or no creatures that were evolved beyond some point. And so now imagine somebody bought the futures on our solar system and they're going to own the whole solar system if we never achieved a certain level of technology. They might want to play with our history, wouldn't you think? Mm. Well, they want that investment to pay off. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, well, uh, so that is sort of an underlying little kind of, not really a spoiler but kind of a you know just gives you an idea about uh, what what could be happening in this universe yeah well it's a super cool idea um what uh what can you tell us about what cool stuff might we encounter as the series progresses um we, are you are you working on more books in the yeah yeah no i am presently uh I'm finishing actually right now i finished up uh, uh back to the moon 2 with Les Johnson, I'm almost done. Probably done with it in about two weeks, and uh, that'll be called uh, "Destruction from Near Earth Orbit," and uh, uh, that's coming out. That you know, we're gonna, we'll turn it in within a month or so, and then it'll be out. You know, whatever, however long it takes for it to come out. But I have the outline already pumped out for the the next book in the Tau Ceti Agenda series, which uh, right now I'm calling it uh, "Kill Before Dying." <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, the AICs, the artificial intelligence counterparts in this series, for now, they're either controlling some kind of mechanized thing like a garbage truck 
which I didn't actually bring that into this book, uh, you know, Moore's Garment Truck that became his limo. I may use that in the future, though. And uh, But uh, they either there or they're in a, in a human brain. And so they're, they're seeing it as far as we can tell. And I go in more in this book about how artificial intelligence counterparts are made and are, are born, so to speak. But what if they didn't want to have to live to share a body with another sentient creature? Could they create their own bodies and put themselves in it? I don't know. On each of the books in this series, you think you know what's going on until you read the last last few pages. The book that's out right now is Trail of Evil by Travis S. Taylor. It's out in hardcover at booksellers everywhere. Well, Travis, thank you very much for being with us. Oh, hey, thanks for having me, and uh, I've enjoyed it anytime, and uh, hope you like the book. And now here is another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents. In each generation, more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at it. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives, the Grim Noir, who are dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse, an apocalypse that seems to be accelerating toward a terrible finale. Here is Bronson Pinchot with this portion of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 24 The Imperials have a war cry, Tanoheka Banzai. It means something about the Emperor ruling for 10,000 years. The Emperor is a puppet, but the soldiers meant it when they bellowed it at the tops of their lungs. Their actives would often charge numerically superior entrenched positions with complete disregard for their own lives, confident in the rightness of their cause. Banzai! Captain John J. Pershing, Army Observation Report on the Taking of Vladivostok, 1905. San Francisco, California. John Moses Browning was sitting up in bed. His chest still ached from the gunshot that had left him crushed and bruised, but he could certainly call his new, lightweight, woven armor vest a success. He was getting far too old for this business. The UBF company healer had stuck with his parting promise to Francis and had mended him, but not nearly all the way, just enough to keep him from dying, the rotten weasel. He had listened to Southunder's message along with most of the grimoire in the world. He knew Southunder well, so he knew that the man spoke the truth. Many thought that he had been run out of the society because of his rashness in dealing with the enemy, but Browning suspected it had been more because of his outspoken loyalty to Pershing's cause to take the fight to the enemy rather than to skulk in the shadows. Something about that magic conversation had left him unsettled. He'd had a notebook in his pocket, as was his custom. It had been retained with his other things at the hospital, and he had sent for it. When the nurse had brought it, he had turned immediately to the last few pages where he had carefully copied down the mad scribblings that Jake Sullivan had drawn on the mansion walls after his brief death. He had never seen the power represented as a single cohesive entity before, yet it made sense. His mind had always been attuned to making pieces fit together in perfect harmony, and this was no different. Given sufficient time, he had no doubt that a map could be made of where every single individual magical ability originated, and if that corresponding geometric shape could be drawn correctly, then those energies could be harnessed. 
It was exciting, but it would have to be a younger man's work, because he had no doubt that it would take a lifetime and he'd been living on borrowed time for too long now. But it was for another reason he'd turned to Sullivan's map. It was the interrelation of the various powers. He'd long held suspicions that a sufficiently powerful active could blur the borders between their own abilities into those areas that traditionally belonged to others. Sullivan was a perfect example of this, having moved beyond just altering gravity into the related fields of mass and density. If this new hypothesis was correct, then it was possible that with sufficient knowledge, any active could do this, which was extremely exciting, but once again, not his purpose. The power's complete body seemed to be two overlaid triangles. Sullivan's drawing was two-dimensional, so that was all Browning had to work with. The bottom triangle was how the power interacted with the physical world. The top triangle was how it interacted with the living world. The two combined into one great mass in the middle. Overall, it looked a bit like the Star of David. The physical triangle's three points were gravity, electromagnetism, and nuclear forces, the governing laws of the universe. Each of the active magics that influenced physical realities was connected to coordinates within those areas. It was the top triangle that had been more mysterious to Sullivan. This one appeared to interact with life, with three points ending in the biological, the mental, and then into one that Sullivan had left as a question mark, but that Browning's personal belief system logically attributed to the spiritual. The coordinates in the middle were where actives that seemed to overlap the two areas came from. Healers were such, near the middle, and Sullivan had gotten a good look at the geometric structures there that Browning had long erroneously thought of as stylized archaic letters. Healers operated in the realm between physical and electromagnetic. The other areas around that had also been mapped into their coherent pieces by Sullivan's fevered hand, and the close cousin to the healer was the pale horse. They inhabited bordering areas. Both bent the laws of biology and matter to their will, one for good, one for ill. And if one were to reason that a sufficiently strong active, such as a heavy, could wander into fields such as mass and density, then why couldn't he assume that a sufficiently strong healer could wander slightly into the area of causing disease, or even more important to the particular question haunting him? Could a sufficiently strong pale horse drift across the boundary and masquerade as a weak healer? They had never found the man who had cursed Pershing. Oh, how they'd looked. They'd torn the world apart, overturning every rock, but they'd never found the Imperium villain. But what if they'd been looking in the wrong place all along? Browning summoned a nurse and sent for a runner. Even under a different identity, he was still a man of great means and resources. When the errand boy arrived, he requested for him to travel to a bank to a specific safety deposit box to retrieve something for him. The boy returned an hour later and gave Browning a wrapped package. He tipped the boy generously, sent him on his way, and then removed the Colt M1911 from the box. He loaded it with a seven-round magazine of 230-grain forty-five caliber ammunition, all of which had been designed by his hand put the safety on, and placed the gun beneath his pillow. Then he activated his ring and called for the nearest grimoire to come to his aid. There were only two other grimoire in the area, both oath-bound to respond, and whichever one came, they had some explaining to do. UBF Tempest Francis was so nervous he could barely think, by hugging the clouds, they had gotten within half a mile of the Tokugawa. Both vessels headed due west, but the tempest was traveling twice as fast. They would be attacking from above. The marauder would be coming in from the left. Was that port? Whatever, south, he corrected himself. He had to try to remember to think in nautical terms. 
The other battleship was half a mile ahead of the flagship, and they were trying to orient their approach so that the flagship blocked its shot. We've been spotted, the driver shouted. Searchlights! And as soon as he said that, a perfect white beam flashed across the window bubble, highlighting the crew's taut faces and clenched teeth. Weatherman, draw in the storm. Helm, full speed ahead, Lance shouted. Bounce this son of a bitch off their top deck if you have to, but get us down there now. Sparks rose from the distant Tokugawa, and Francis realized, in an abstract way, that those were giant tracer bullets heading right for them. Faye was standing off to the side, shotgun over her shoulder, scowling, waiting for something. You got it, Faye? Lance asked quickly. Not yet. Almost. She had her eyes closed. Wait, what are you doing? Francis asked. You're not going to... Got it! Faye opened her gray eyes and disappeared. By herself? Damn it, Lance! Francis shouted. The front window shattered in a spray of glass. Sparks shot from the radio console as the tracers screamed past his head. Bullets puckered through the walls and the driver screamed in pain and lurched away from the controls. Foam from the torn seat blew around in the new wind like a snow flurry. Lance immediately shrugged into the chair and kept them on course. It ain't like she's any safer here, kid, he said. Imperium Flagship Tokugawa Fay hit the deck ten feet from the gunners. They were so focused on the blimp heading their way that they never even saw her coming. She tucked the shotgun butt tight into her shoulder pocket and welded her cheek to the stock, just like she'd been taught. She lined the gold bead at the end of the barrel with the soldier's head and pulled the trigger. The shotgun really kicked hard and the muzzle rose, but she still saw his head pretty much pop open all over the place. The browning shotgun was nice because you didn't have to do anything but pull the trigger and it just kept cycling itself. She brought the gun back down and shot the other one in the back. These men might look different, but they were exactly the same as the ones that had killed her grandpa, and killing them made her feel good. Justified. There was another big cannon throwing those red sparkle bullets at her friends, so she traveled over there to give those bad men a piece of her mind. She did that by landing six feet away from the two gunners, blasting them both to bits, and then turning and nailing a third one in the chest It was running up with another can of ammo. He hit the railing, flipped over the side, and a belt of cartridges spilled and rolled out nearly to her feet. Serves you right, jerks, she shouted at no one in particular. That was it for the guns on the rear end but there were more popping away on the other side, probably at the nice old pirate ship, so she pulled shells out of her bandolier and started shoving them in the shotgun's magazine tube. The tempest screamed by overhead, a giant gray mass that looked sort of like two footballs stuck together with wings. She craned her neck and saw that the loading ramp was already open and Heinrich was hanging out the back end, firing a loud gun that seemed to shoot way too fast. She waved checked her head map, and picked a spot right in the middle of the next gun emplacement. Faye traveled, landed between three surprised young men in black uniforms, realized one was wearing one of those grenade things on his belt, so she reached down, yanked the pin out of it like Mr. Browning had shown her to arm the explosive, and traveled. She reappeared, landing in a crouch, balanced effortlessly on a railing fifty feet away, as the soldier panicked, trying to get the grenade out of his pouch, but then it blew up and bits of sharp wire blew him in half and maimed his two buddies. That gun was quiet and she'd saved ammo. I'm pretty good at this. When they had just been here to rescue Jane, her job had been simple, find her friend and get her out. But with the big evil super bomb about to go off, her mission had changed. It was time to cause some trouble. She liked this new mission a lot more. F.S. Bulldog Marauder So is this the craziest thing you've ever done or what? Barnes asked from the pilot seat of the streamlined Curtis biplane. Sullivan was balanced, holding onto the struts, leather straps anchoring him to the plane so he wouldn't be torn off as soon as they dropped into the open sky. He thought about the question. 
He had done many things that would be considered crazy. Jumping from a moving airplane onto a moving dirigible thousands of feet above the ocean was probably near the top of the list. The only thing under his boots was a narrow aluminum wing. Under that was nothing but darkness and lightning that seemed to go forever. When Sullivan didn't answer, Barnes just kept shouting. It was more like he read his lips over the thunder of the already moving propeller. Don't worry, Barnes is my nickname, short for Barnstormer. Wesley Barnstormer Dalton, best damn pilot you've ever seen. I really hope so, Sullivan thought. Barnes revved the engine, and the whole plane protested against the hooks holding it suspended to the dirigible. Now Sullivan was totally deaf. Barnes pulled a tight black mask down to cover his face and then put on a pair of round aviator's goggles, making him look alien. Since Sullivan was dressed in the exact same manner with a big black coat, mask, and goggles, they probably matched. Barnes stuck out his fist and put his thumb up. Sullivan figured that the thumbs up was some sort of aviation symbol, but from his reading of classical history, he couldn't remember if that meant the gladiator lived or died. He'd find out in a minute. South Under was driving the marauder right at the Tokugawa, trying to maneuver in a way that kept the more lightly armed flagship between them and the dreadnought. The tempest was hitting the topside, so their pom-pom guns were pounding shell after one-pound explosive shell at the side engines. The more they could damage its mobility, the easier it would be to keep using it as a shield. South Under was using his power to drag the storm with them. Wreaths of lightning crackled around their ship, and the only reason they hadn't exploded yet was Lady Origami. Sullivan wasn't sure if he was going to be more scared out there riding on the wing of a biplane or in here. A red light in the bay above them turned green, and Barnes reached up and pulled a lever. The steel claw released, and they dropped, screaming into the night. He closed his eyes tight as his stomach fell through his pelvis and decided that he had his answer. This was definitely worse. This was madness, but Sullivan was the most powerful active on board, and this was the fastest way to get him to where he could do the most damage. The Curtis Raptor was quick, and the wet air made him feel like it was going to rip his skin off. He thought about increasing his density, but was terrified that might somehow mess with what Barnes was doing, and that was the last thing he wanted to do. They streaked across the sky. Tracers crossed X's ahead of them, and Barnes shoved the stick down hard. There was a small explosion next to one machine gun nest, and the pilot instinctively turned into that open space. Something black zipped under them, and Sullivan didn't realize it was a Jap fighter until it was passed. Barnes was whipping the raptor back and forth, getting them closer, moving like magic between the bullets. The kid had to possess some kind of power, because no normal human was capable of these kinds of reactions. The Lewis gun mounted over the engine fired, ballooning red right through the propeller as the interrupter gear kept them from destroying their own prop. There was a flash of sparks and a Jap fighter that Sullivan hadn't even known was there burst into flames and fell from the sky. Barnes pumped his fist in the air. Then they were over the Tokugawa, and it was as bright and wide as a city boulevard. Soldiers scurried about under them, shooting at them with small arms, and a hole appeared between Sullivan's feet. Good as it's gonna get, he uncinched the buckle and let the momentum tear him from the plane. He fell like a stone, arms tucked tight against him, long black coat whipping in the wind and though he was falling far enough to splatter him all over that blimp, he was just glad to get off that damn biplane. He spiked, lessening the Earth's pull. He spread his arms and legs to catch more resistance until his momentum slowed. Concentrating hard, he waited until he was close enough, then cut his magic and dropped the rest of the way. Already soaked to the bone, he landed on the metal roof of the superstructure in a splash of collected water, Automatically opening his coat and unsecuring his bullpup auto-rifle, he assessed the situation. On the opposite end of the Tokugawa, the UBF ship was coming in hard. He ran the charging handle and raised the gun. Soldiers were running down the catwalk below him, ready to repel boarders. In all the confusion, nobody had seen him falling. 
They didn't even know he was here, but he could fix that real quick. Even though it made the gun longer, he'd screwed the Maxim sound silencer onto the end of the bar's muzzle. Rather than the slow roar he was used to, the gun sounded like a series of hissing cracks as he mowed down the Imperium troops. The men stopped, confused, unsure where the bullets were coming from. One of them turned and pointed at the black-clad figure in the goggles, but Sullivan calmly dropped him with a single .30-06 through the ribs. But there were too many down there and more pouring outside every second. Gotta keep moving. It was time to take this fight out of the rain. There was a skylight ten feet away, so he ran over and jumped onto the glass. As the soldiers below returned fire, he activated his power as he hit, and the roof beneath his feet shattered into a million gleaming shards. Imperium Flagship Tokugawa Iron Guard, we are under attack. Spotters confirm two airships incoming, one single hull, one small double. Matty walked across the red-lit command center. The captain did not speak. Technically, the naval officer was in charge, but when the first Iron Guard was on deck, everyone addressed him instead. Matty listened for a moment, his magically augmented hearing discerning that the aft anti-air batteries had opened up on something. They only had a handful of weapon stations up and running so far, and those had been hastily installed with equipment brought over from the Kaga. Battle stations, he ordered. The alarm klaxon sounded. Tell the Kaga to nail them with their death ray. The radio operator chimed in. Kaga reports no clear shot. They're hiding behind us. There was a slight tremor as an explosive shell struck their vessel. It was like an ant biting a horse. Tell them that's what the fucking rudder is for and move until they can get one, he bellowed. Captain, you have the bridge. Kill these assholes. Maddie moved quickly down the long hallway. He got into the elevator and cranked the down lever. He could still hear what was going on topside. One rear gun stopped, and then the next. The smaller machine gun positions on the outer hull were firing now. He picked up the vibration of an explosion and small arms fire. We've been boarded, he muttered. He stepped out of the elevator into the engineering section, which was midway down the center of the craft, sandwiched between the first and second hull. He walked down the wide metal catwalk with two heaving gas bags the size of buildings on either side. This section's torch saluted him as he passed. There were nine of that type of active on the Tokugawa's crew, three for each hull, so that there would always be at least one working each hull 24 hours a day. It might seem like overkill, but torches were one of the most common actives and no expense was too great to assure the chairman's security. The Unit 731 weirdos were clustered in the main workshop, fiddling around with the Tesla device. It had all been screwed together, and he recognized most of it since he'd been the one to personally secure the pieces. The blueprints he'd snapped Wild Bill Jones' neck for were tacked to the wall. The bottom piece had come from Christensen's cabin after Yutaka's bull king had torn his guts out. The center came from that traveling Portuguese after he'd shot him with the beast. One section was shiny and new, produced by the cogs to make up for the small part that damn traveling brat had kept. Only the top bit was unfamiliar, a round globe made of an unknown substance crackling with purple electricity. The whole thing was only a foot long, which really wasn't very impressive considering it could blow up whole countries. How much longer? he barked. The cog leader, Shiro Ishii, bent his neck in submission. We will need another twenty minutes. The design is extremely complex. Well, we've been boarded by somebody, so get your shit together. He moved to the phone and pulled up the mouthpiece. It took the switchboard a minute to connect him to the Marine Command. This is Iron Guard Maddie. I want a squad protecting the cogs in engineering and whatever Iron Guard are available now. He put the horn back in the cradle and folded his arms. He'd stick around here until the Marines showed up. Protecting the device came first. Then he'd go find those boarders and stomp the life out of them. The chairman was more than capable of looking after himself. He felt a prickling of his scalp. 
Maddie wasn't sure it had something to do with the extra sensitivity granted to him by his kanji, or maybe because they shared the same type of magic, or maybe it was just because they were of the same blood, but he just knew. It was impossible. He was dead. He'd beaten him to a bloody pulp and left him to be cooked by the peace ray. The chairman had promoted him to first for having the will to kill his own brother in service to the Imperium. His very existence was an insult, a mockery, a dishonor. He didn't know how that little bastard had lived, but somehow he had, and he was here on the Tokugawa just to piss him off. Jake was here. That was another segment of our complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pincho. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a quantum teleported shower of shooting stars from Fomahalt B, along with a clone army for use in simulating odd weather anomalies and to serve as a personal guard of honor. And a round of thanks and huzzas. For Travis S. Taylor, author of Trail of Evil. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Bye.